Welcome to the Classic Speeches Podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, bringing you treasured talks from 70 years of BYU devotionals. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts, or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. It was another lunchtime at Brigham Young University, and this wonderful BYU administrator was wending his way through the Calvin Kleins and the Jordash Deans to the Wilkinson Center in the Sky Room, where I would sit as a token representative, albeit a well-used and most substantial token, at yet another important luncheon. Arriving at the elevator full of anticipation as to whether the BYU sparkle that day, our sanctified 7-Up, would be pink or blue or clear on this particular day, I shoved aboard the crowded 1202 and found myself uh, sardined, albeit a very substantial and salty sardine, with 20 other persons in a 10-person elevator. Suddenly, the ascending elevator stopped at the third floor, and one of my faculty colleagues, portly and totally bald, begged for admittance. The crowded inhabitants groaned, shuffled, leaned, and squeezed in order to permit him entrance. So tight was the squeeze that the teacher was unable to back into the car and face the front. Instead, he leaned into us, his arms outspread, and waited until the doors closed, wheezing shut behind him when he shoved back against them. Catching his breath, he suddenly became aware of 39 eyes of ascending saints looking at him. One of them had a cataract. (laughs) Then, nodding his kojak pate thoughtfully and authoritatively, He spoke to his quiet observers. I suppose you all wonder why I've called you here together this afternoon. (laughs) The effect was amazing. The effect was humor. Twenty individual strangers were, in a moment, bonded together as a cohesive band of pilgrims, and our combined belly laugh roared up the elevator shaft, even unto the gates of the celestial city or sky room, for the difference is not great. In a moment, one man had deftly touched our collective funny bone, and suddenly it was a time for laughter, and the journey of each of the pilgrims was brightened and cheered. It's in celebration of that comic spirit that I wish to cheer with you this morning. As I lead you in this mirthful hip-hip hooray, I'd like to define humor just a bit, examine a few of its traits, and illustrate some of its nuances. There are, of course, a number of dangers inherent in the topic of humor. In the first place, a college dean, albeit a substantial one, has no place talking about jokes. Deans are jokes. (laughs) In the second place, a stake president has no business talking about humor. Stake presidents are to be humored. Indeed, stake president and humor are contradictory terms like fun run or generous banker, or charming composition teacher, or friendly youth fan, or a seminary teacher who sticks to the scriptures. (laughs) No doubt my nearly nine years as a stake president will soon come to an end because of this talk. (laughs) For with the famous Reverend Sidney Smith, who once explained when he was asked why he never obtained a bishopric in his church while inferior men did, I also must say, I sink by my levity while others rise by their gravity. (laughs) 
But there are even more terrifying dangers in the topic of humor, for explaining humor, especially after the laugh, is like performing an autopsy. The excitement is minimal. The patient is already dead. <laughs> it's disheartening to dissect the innards of a laugh, a chortle, a guffaw, a titter, or even a smile. Americans see themselves, though, as a good-natured people, a laid-back people, a humor-loving people, and a humorous people. We cherish and cultivate the sense of humor, and we include it in all our, our introductions of people who have them, whether they have it or not, though we seldom note it in their obituaries, I observe. No one wants to be found guilty in America of non-possession of a sense of humor. But secretly, and here's the danger to the humorist, Americans have a long cultural taproot in Puritan tradition and are profoundly suspicious of anything that is non-serious. Some insist, therefore, on viewing humorists as frivolous, as fools. Thus, Mark Twain, along with the entire cackle of 19th and 20th century American humorists, dreaded being taken lightly, being called a funny man or a buffoon. On a visit with young Helen Keller, Mark Twain once said, full of self-pity, I have only amused people, but Miss Keller's response delighted him. Oh, no, Mr. Twain, you are sometimes light and on the surface, and sometimes you are very deep. In fact, humor and humorists are like that, sometimes light and sometimes very deep. But at any level, they are a gentle threat to the serious American who draws near to humor with his lips, though his heart may be far from it. <laughs> Flirting with humor can be dangerous to your health. Humor, wrote E.B. White, plays like an active child close to the big hot fire where is truth. And sometimes the child feels the heat. Humor is indeed a danger to human pretensions, to hypocrisy, to vanity, and thus a danger to all of us, where at some point each of us must learn the definition of human being, which reads, a person who will laugh while looking in the family album and then look into the mirror and never crack a smile. <laughs> humor is a threat to our pride, for it is an occasional reminder that the sure and firm-set earth upon which we tread can shake and tumble at any moment. If you say that such is also the effect of religion, you're speaking gospel truth. True humor and true religion mount a steady siege against layers of falseness which can congest and destroy our spirits. Humor and religion can become, then, the dristan of our spirits, transforming us from postnatal drips and putting us into celestial contact. But perhaps I'm being excedrin. Humor is especially dangerous to the sober-spirited one. Sidney J. Harris insisted that many ponderous and humorless men equate mere solemnity with seriousness. And the Frenchman, La Rochefoucauld, adds that a solemnity of behavior is often a trick to disguise the deficiencies of the mind. Too many, concludes Harris, inadvertently reveal themselves in a heaviness of manner that masks an emptiness of substance. Too often, those who seem to be taking their subjects seriously are simply taking themselves seriously. Such are but a few of the dangers confronting those who flee from or who cast their bread upon the puddles of wit and humor. What then is this elusive, fragile, mysterious, spontaneous thing called humor? What is a sense of humor? Well, a sense of humor is the ability to discover, to identify, and to appreciate the ludicrous and the incongruous in words, in situations, in ideas, in human beings, and in the universe. It is, as Stephen Laycock has written, 
the kindly contemplation of the incongruities of life and the artistic expression thereof. Or as a neighbor put it, it's what makes you laugh at something which would make you mad when it happened to you. <laughs> a sense of humor is at least a partial way of looking at life. It's a person opting to see himself or herself from a comic instead of from a solemn perspective. Humor is a kind of self-traumatization in which a human being clambers out of himself, springs to a nearby pinnacle, and views himself from a different standpoint, from a comic stance, which either diminishes the problem by placing it in a cosmic context or magnifies the problem by exaggerating the matter to ludicrous dimensions and thus diminishing it. Another occasional misunderstanding. Humor, like wit, may be gentle or rough, subtle or unsophisticated, but it need not be critical. Humor can range from the bludgeonings of burlesque to a subtle turn of the pen, but true humor is always a product of natural growth, a product of accident, not art. Humor is spontaneous. It's a child psychiatrist writing in a newspaper a column about disciplining children. It is permissible to spank a child if one has a very definite end in view. <laughs> humor is a slip of the chalk on a menu board at a local eatery, dreaded veal cutlets. <laughs> humor is natural, relaxed, and often innocent, and its duty is to describe the ludicrous and the incongruous. While humor presents the ludicrous as it is, wit, different than humor, exposes the ludicrous by contrasting it with something else. Wit is, wrote Mark Twain, the sudden marriage of ideas which before that union were not perceived to have any relation. G.K. Chesterton said it well when he urged that the man who sees consistency in things is a wit. The man who sees the inconsistency in things is a humorist. Thus, when Robert Frost wrote, Forgive, O Lord, my little jokes on thee, and I'll forgive thy great big one on me. <clears throat> Frost is warming us with his wit. He is juxtaposing man against God, and the result is both ludicrous and incongruous. Note that Frost's humor here is not based in accident or nature. It is a product of art and skill. It is wit. Still, it's not very productive to argue about where humor ends and wit begins. It's all comic. It's all funny. For example, consider this favorite story of my colleague, Dr. Woodruff C. Thompson, who sets his story in San Pete County, that earlier mecca of Danish LDS converts. Sister Johnson, Sister Peterson, and Sister Hansen are talking in the backyard one afternoon. And Sister Johnson, lowering her voice, says to the others, I am feeling so sorry for dear Sister Olsen. She is married now five years and still has no baby. I know she is sad about this. It is a shame. I think uh, the couple is, as you say, uh, inconceivable. <laughs> Sister Peterson and Sister Hansen, they both nod in sympathy, and Sister Peterson says, Yes, I too am very sorry for Sister Olsen. She wants a little baby so much, but I think that you do not use the right English word. What is wrong with Sister Olsen? It's not that she is inconceivable. The problem with Sister Olsen is that she is impregnable. <laughs> well, Sister Hansen nods, and she says, You're both right, and you're both wrong. It's a shame that Sister Olsen has not got the little baby, but you're wrong about the English word. Sister Olsen is not inconceivable. She is not impregnable. I heard the brother Olsen tell the bishop the other evening, The trouble with Sister Olsen is that she is unbearable. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
Now, this joke is humorous because the mistake on which the joke is based arises from an apparent verbal accident. But the joke's also witty because the jokesmith artistically contrives several kinds of comparisons and contrasts. Remember, the more the humor is based in mistakes and accidents, the more clearly humorous the story. The more the humor is contrived, intellectual, moralistic, or caustic, the wittier it is. Thus, Dr. Richard O. Cowan's joke about the reluctant deacon who was called on several times by the bishop during sacrament meeting to fetch three chairs for the stake presidency, only to have the deacon finally hesitantly stand up and shout, Stake presidency! Raw! 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 Is humor based as it is in accident and misunderstanding. While a famous Yale chaplain's response to a student's accusation that religion is a crutch is wit, retorts the good chaplain to the student, sure, religion is a crutch, but who isn't limping? Hilarious? No. Witty? Yes. Through all of these gropings for definitions of humor, wit, and the comic, I've kept intoning words incongruity and incongruous, Incongruity is the discrepancy between someone, what someone thinks he is and what he really is. The tensions caused by incongruity, by appearance battling against reality, are the foundations of humor, wit, the essence of the laughable, of the comic spirit. William Hazlitt said it well, Man is the only animal that laughs and weeps, for he is the only animal that is struck with the difference between what things are and what they ought to be. Again, we seem very near to describing the goal of religion, which is to narrow that gap. Cartoonists thrive on incongruity. Some of you will recall the classic Calvin Grandall cartoon in a universe of several years ago. Incidentally, I, I love the, uh, the sense of incongruity I get when I call the office of the daily universe and someone answers and says, hello, this is the universe, and I always respond, Hello, universe. How are things out there? <clears throat> well, anyway, in this, uh, in this cartoon, a BYU male is seen rising, cut and bleeding from a pile of rocks, all of which have obviously been thrown at him. He says to the BYU security policemen as they come to his assistance, All I said was, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. The evident incongruity here attacks self-righteousness, a form of a sad form of affectation. Incongruity is the key. It transforms the solemn into the familiar, generally by means of exaggeration, and makes the solemn accessible for laughter. This process recurs in the creation of all humor. Consider the sign I once saw in a small store in southern Utah. In God we trust, all others pay cash. I laughed, and you had better too. But what caused that laugh? What caused your laugh? In such a line, we discover the traditional, idealistic, accepted truism in God we trust, running smack into the hard-headed pragmatism of another traditional, accepted truism. All others pay cash. Well, uh, one seemingly contradicts the other with a bit of cash-and-carry common sense practiced by Democrats and Republicans just before the elections. Hearing in God we trust, all others pay cash, our minds are boggled by these two paradoxes. In, split, in a split second, we grapple with the contradictions, then we flex along a series of possible responses which range from moral outrage to ironic hilarity. As we flex along trying to find the various responses, our minds decide that the statements, though confusing, are not threats to our self-esteem, our digestive system, our families, or our faith, and we fly to the outlet marked laughter, and we laugh. 
and the tension is relieved. Through laughter, incongruities are resolved and order is restored to our tentative universes. Society has a role in all of this as well. Suspicious of incongruous flex inflexibility in a person or institution, society begins to watch for signs of eccentricity. As each of you has learned, laughter is a great corrector of eccentricities. Laughter is a means of effecting reform. Why? Laughter betokens a sudden sense of superiority, says Marcel Pagnol, where it expresses the laugher's sudden discovery of his own momentary superiority over the person he laughs at. Of course, affecting solemnity can also provide us with feelings of momentary superiority. But rather than calling such feelings momentary superiority, I guess I'd prefer to describe my mirthful feelings not so much as schadenfreude, but as the shock of recognition that there in that situation, for the grace of luck or fortune or the fact that I saw the banana peel first and he didn't, go I. Such a feeling springs less from a sense of superiority, it seems to me, than from relief and a tentative recognition that on another day it might be he who spots the banana peel and I who engage it. In either case, it is the banana peel that has the last and the loudest laugh. Strictly speaking, wit and humor are really another means of taking life seriously. Wit and humor teach, assert, proclaim, and subtly call for reform. That's why Mark Twain wrote that there is no lasting quality to humor unless it's based on real substance. Being funny, he continues, doesn't mean anything unless there is an underlying human note. And he underscored the following passage on Jonathan Swift in an essay by Thackeray. The humor writer professes to awaken and direct your love, your pity, your kindness, your scorn for untruth, pretension, imposture, your tenderness for the weak, the poor, the unhappy. He comments on all the ordinary actions and passions of life. He takes upon himself to be the weekday preacher. Weekday preacher is a good definition for humorist. Mark Twain insisted that humor must not professedly teach and it must not professedly preach, but it better be do both if it would live forever. And he added with a typical Twainian afterclap, by forever I mean 30 years. Twain rightfully saw humor as a corrective and an adjuster of the fuzzy gap between appearance and reality. He likened humor to the screw on a field glass. It helps bring things into focus. But Twain went one step too far. He insisted that the incongruities of humor are based only in man's sorrowful condition. Everything humor, human is pathetic, he said. The secret source of humor is not joy, but sorrow. In humor, in heaven, there is no humor. Well, I think he was wrong because I think he has the wrong idea about heaven. If humor is based largely in incongruities fostered by society, I shout hurrah for the Mormon heaven where the same sociality exists as on earth. I see some distinctive possibilities for humor in the Mormon heaven. Possibilities for a lofty celestial, a middle-brow terrestrial, and a downright earthy telestial variety. Well, think about the witty bon mots of haughty celestial types as they jest about that rare, godly English major, it took him a long time, trying to engineer his first universe. Or about the length of fast Sundays when a day is as a thousand years. <laughs> or the joys of eternal and eternal and eternal motherhood, and eternal and numberless mothers-in-law. <laughs> I suppose that outer darkness will be lightened now and then by a few anti-administration jokes as well as a few nagging Cleopatra and Anthony or Mr. and Mrs. Macbeth or what did Hitler say to Mussolini jokes. 
In the heavens are there to be no incongruities? The thought makes reason stare. Just knowing we're forever tells me there'll be humor there. <clears throat> and think of all the available wives waiting to refine one's delivery and straighten out one's punchlines. But whether in the heavens or here on earth, humor must be kept in its proper perspective. Humor is, after all, only one of many ways of viewing life. There is, as the writer of Ecclesiastes noted thousands of years ago, a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, urging the Latter-day Saints to avoid excess of laughter, to remember the solemnities of eternity, the Lord, speaking particularly of our conduct on the Sabbath, asks that we cultivate cheerful hearts and countenances, not with much laughter, for this is sin, but with a glad heart. Certainly, as Elder McConkie has written, joyful laughter meets with divine approval, and when properly engaged in, it is wholesome and edifying. Well, the complexities of humor depend so much on launching the, the right incongruities at the right moment. The sense of humor must therefore include a keen sense of timing, which is almost a moral sense, a delicate mechanism with a hair trigger that can go off at the wrong time, even for the most successful humorist. Well, as I've already indicated, it's difficult to classify wit and humor, though mankind's been trying to do it since Homer and Aristophanes and since Beowulf and since... Uh, uh, the English published their first joke book in, yes, 1526, ten years before Coverdale published the first complete Bible to be printed in English. How's that for putting the cart before the horse? Just let, let's just say by way of offering some loose categories that incongruity in the use of words, of situations, of ideas, and of characters seems to cover the whole morass. Let's look at a few examples of each of these four categories and then wrap up this ordeal by verbal, verbal abuse. Word humor is probably the earliest recorded humor, the walls of caves being what they are. Word humor relies on wordplay, on the banter of tongue slips, on double meanings, rhyme, rhythm, and alliteration. From puns to tongue twisters to nonsense verse, wordplay demands keen attention to subtle or not so subtle incongruities of meaning. It also demands an appreciative audience. Probably the best-known word humor is the malign but benign pun. Each of you out there has, in ignorance, so hissed and booed when a brilliant associate has waxed punny that the pun is becoming an endangered species. You respond so because your high school English teacher, who should have been teaching physics or gym coaching, failed to understand that the pun is among the highest forms of humor, not the lowest. Your hisses and boos, springing from intolerance and misunderstanding, are in reality public acknowledgments of your momentary feelings of superiority. You got the pun, and so it must be dumb. <laughs> Nonsense. Puns are wonderful. They give the listener a needed sense of fleeting superiority. They give the punster a sense of deafness and adroitness, which makes his day. And what's even better, puns give the uncomprehending numbskull well-deserved and spiritually cleansing humiliation. <laughs> punsters are lovers of language. All punsters, poets are punsters, for much of poetry is simply punning, strained, mashed, and salted. Thus, the famous punster Shakespeare has Mercutio sigh as he is dying after the duel in Romeo and Juliet. Ask for me tomorrow, and you shall find me a grave man. <laughs> And Robert Frost cracks. I once had a cow that jumped over the moon. 
not onto the moon, but over. I don't know what made her so lunar a loon. All she'd been having was clover. <laughs> but most puns are merely wise, straightforward, and wonderful, like this. Many a blonde dies by her own hand. <laughs> or like the more elaborate... Said the Czechoslovakian refugee who desired asylum at the American embassy, surely you won't mind cashing a small check. <laughs> the pun has many varieties, among which is the Tom Swifty. In every Tom Swift novel, Tom states everything adverbially. Let's take a ride in my airplane, Tom said daringly. Making a Tom Swifty of that, the line would read, Let's take a ride in my airplane. Tom said, aerodynamically. Oh, how I'm looking forward to this ride, said Lady Godiva shiftlessly. <laughs> the cougars are going to claw the Utes to pieces, she purred, cattily. Another form of the wordplay word is the wacky definition. Bachelor, a man who leans toward women but not far enough to alter his stance. No. No, because a bachelor has not enough sense to bridle his passions. <laughs> Atheist. A man with no invisible means of support. It is, of course, only one staggered step from the pun to the grand art of nonsense verse. Consider this one by Ogden Nash. Reflections on babies. A bit of talcum is always welcome. Or the lawyer's lullaby. Be still, my child. Remain in status quo while father rocks the cradle to and fro. <laughs> when he wrote the Jabberwocky, of course, Sir Lewis Carroll advanced the art of nonsense first by defeating the manxum foe with his snicker-snacking sword. But he also spawned a son of Jabberwocky entitled Jabberwacky, or dreaming after falling asleep watching commercials on TV. Twas Brillo, and the GE Stowe's did Procter Gamble in the Glade. All Pillsbury were the tasty loaves, and in a minute made. Beware the station break, my son, the voice that lulls the ads that vex. Beware the doctor's claim, and shun that horror called Brand X. He took his Q-tip swab in hand, long time the tension headache fought. So dristen he by a mercury and Bayer braked in thought. And as in buffer and gulf he stood, the station break with rise of tame came whisking through the pride-hazed wood and cream rinsed as it came. <laughs> by one, by two, we're almost through. The Q-tip dash went spick and span. He tied Airwick and with this quick went arrow-waxing ban. And hast thou drift the station break? Ajax the Breck, Excedron boy. Oh, fab wash day, cashmere bouquet. He hand it wrapped in joy. <laughs> Twas Brillo, and the GE Stowe's did Procter Gamble in the glade. All Pillsbury were the tasty loaves, and in a minute made. Perhaps the ultimate expression of word humor is the contrived shaggy dog story, featuring the interminable lead-in to the punny final line, which may or may not be worth the wait. <laughs> Dick, did you hear about the traveler in Africa who came down with a terrible malady? No. 
They took him to a witch doctor who examined him, diagnosed the malady, and he gave the traveler a leather thong. Every two hours, the witch doctor said, he was to bite off a one-inch-long piece of the leather thong and chew it and swallow it. <clears throat> In a week, he'd be well again. Well, what happened? Well, he did as he was told, but after a week, he was no better. The witch doctor came and asked how he was. The weak traveler struggled out. Doctor, the thong is ended, but the malady lingers on. Now, if your natural instinct on hearing that joke was to cheer with joy at the skill of the artist who shaped it, you're a sound and healthy person. <laughs> if you found yourself stifling a boo or a hiss, you have been infected, perhaps fatally, by high school English teacher. I wish I had said that, but I didn't, so I'll condemn what I don't understand, itis. <laughs> if word humor depends on the incongruity of words and their several possible meanings, the second kind of humor, situational humor, depends less on words and more on the ludicrous nature of comic situations. Situational humor is the absent-minded history professor with the broken zipper, the contact lens in the toilet bowl, the junior high boy going to his first dance, and on being told he must always say something complimentary to the girl he dances with, he ponders the case of the portly girl in his arms. On leaving her at the end of the dance, he smiles and says kindly, For a fat girl, you don't sweat much. We have all been players in the drama of situational humor. I recall the horror I felt at 16 when, on responding to an emergency call, my mother picked me, my date, and another couple up after a dance. She arrived at that midnight hour dressed in a robe, curlers, and a pound of cold cream. I was mortified. Then I opened the door and was struck by the realization that she had stuffed her nose with vapor rub. I was almost vapor rubbed out of existence with teenage mortification. She smiled a greasy smile and said, How about an A&W on me? No, I shouted, but was horrified to hear my date and the other couple cheer, Yes! <laughs> Church meetings can also afford situational humor. And I'm going to skip this example that about my two counselors falling asleep in church and I uh, awakening them at the proper time and watching their various responses, one of them looking sufficiently humble and the other he had been a mission president, uh, pretending that he had been meditating on the profundities of eternity. <laughs> the third category, the humor of ideas, may rely on wordplay or on situations, but it's wittier, more artistic, more aware of the social incongruities, more judgmental. While the joke is the most popular conveyor of the humor of ideas, cartoons also belong to the genre. I like Calvin Grandal's cartoons. His two works, The Freeway to Perfection and Faith Promoting Rumors, along with Orson Scott Card's memorable Saint Speak, the Mormon Dictionary, seem to be sitting on everyone's Piro table lately, a little to the left of the standard works, and not quite so dusty. <laughs> In one of Grandal's recent cartoons, a little meek fellow is seen standing on the carpet before a huge desk and an imposing boss. The boss says, No amount of success in the home can compensate for the failure to win the Megacorp account. <laughs> Likewise, Card's hilarious definitions in Saint Speak are not puns on word or word humor, but are the humor of ideas. Note the incongruities reflected in these definitions. 
Cultural Hall, a basketball court sometimes used as an overflow room for the chapel. <laughs> Family is forever. What it feels like on the fourth day of the vacation. <laughs> Home teacher. Two priesthood holders who are responsible for making sure you cannot watch the end of the TV program you have been waiting all month to see. <laughs> Such definitions include the tendency of the humor of ideas to engage or illustrate the tendency to engage in social commentary. They remind us of the art of Buckwald, who illustrates, as in this excerpt, the power of the humor of ideas to jab at such social problems as permissiveness and pornography. Here he interviews Malcolm McMorrill, author of the first anti-pornographic <coughs> novel, A Kiss on the Cheek, and he makes his point. Malcolm, in your book, the title, A Kiss on the Cheek, is apparently taken from a scene on page 157 where the mother kisses her eight-year-old son on the cheek. This is the only kiss in the book. Why? Well, every writer has to deal with life, and that kiss was necessary for the development of the story. I didn't just throw it in for the heck of it. Do you think it's fair for people to pay ten ninety-five and not have at least one really hot love scene somewhere in your novel? All I can do is refer you to the Supreme Court decision of 1943, which says that you can publish a book without a love scene in it, providing it has some social value. <laughs> so you justify your lack of love scenes in the book on the grounds that it has social value. Yes, some dirty-minded people have accused me of writing a clean book for money. Well, I say, who's to judge whether a book is clean or not? Sure, there are clean passages in it, but you have to have those if you're going to deal with reality. <laughs> if I didn't do it, somebody else would have. <laughs> Society is changing all the time. It's true that the clean novel is considered avant-garde at the moment, but that doesn't mean it's wrong. Someday there will be so many clean books on the market that no one will be shocked anymore. <laughs> Our fourth and final category, the humor of character, is perhaps the ultimate humor because it is us. Each of us at some time is funny in some way, but each of us, but some of us are funnier than others. Each of us, faculty accepted, can get a touch pompous, proud, hypocritical, vain, or just plain stupid. At such times, we need the cleansing purgative of humor. Indeed, it's often better to laugh at ourselves first before giving another a crack at us. The humor of character arises then not so much from words or situations as from personality of the individual in confrontation with his world. In life, as in literature, we're surrounded by humorous characters, predictable or unpredictable. Character humor brings us delight. It may be a mother having a mother like I did, who sometimes expressed in the blessing on the food how she really felt about the food and other things. Or having a grandmother, as I did, so hooked on the radio soaps of the 1940s that she would not go to Re Relief Society until an alert Relief Society president set up a quilting frame in the corner of the Relief Society room equipped with a radio and immediately increased the attendance of her Relief Society by ten sisters. The only embarrassment in all of this was that our grandma in her long widowhood had taken to talking to herself and to radio announcers in wonderful conversations. She, had, she told them what she thought in vigorous language. One afternoon in Relief Society, the announcer excitedly proclaimed that a new pain reliever was proven superior to the popular brand, forgetting where she was. And used to responding to the announcer's blandishments with unadorned candor, my old English grandmother, without dropping a stitch, snapped, You damn fool! I tried your patent medicine foolishness and it didn't work. Suddenly aware of her surroundings, 
She looked up at the other quilting sisters with a defensive smile, only to find mutual recognition and relief in their faces as they nodded in vigorous agreement. <laughs> Let me illustrate this humor of character with a few lines from the last will of the testament of Brigham Young. The document was doubtless not intended by President Young to be humorous, but it's gently humorous and decidedly Brigham. I, Brigham Young, wish my funeral services to be conducted in the following manner. When I breathe my last, I wish my friends to put my body in as clean and wholesome a state as can conveniently be done and preserve the same for as long as my body can be preserved in a good condition. I want my coffin made of plump one-and-a-half-inch boards, not scrimped in length, but about two inches longer than I would measure and from two to three inches wider than is commonly made for a person of my breadth and size and deep enough to place me on a little comfortable cotton bed with a good suitable pillow for size and quality. My body dressed in my temple clothing and laid nicely into my coffin. When the coffin to have the appearance that if I wanted to turn a little to the right or to the left, I would have plenty of room to do so. <laughs> the lid can be made crowning. At my interment, I wish all of my family present that can be conveniently, and the male members wear no crepe on their hats or their coats, the females to buy no black bonnets, nor black dresses, nor black veils, but if they have them, they are at liberty to wear them. No crying or mourning for with, uh, for with anyone, as I have done my work faithfully and in good faith. I wish this to be read at the funeral. If I should live to go back with the church to Jackson County, I wish to be buried there. Brigham Young, President of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. <laughs> well, this is good light, natural character humor. We chuckle appreciatively at the rightness of the document, which is so true to character. The same practical, minute, and thus funny concern that Brigham Young shows for the dimensions of his coffin, he has shown in no less detail for things of the kingdom of God. The same spirituality and faith which do not question whether he's done his work well or whether the saints will one day gather to Jackson County has led the saints across the plains of Iowa to the valleys of Wasatch. We do not laugh at Brigham Young or at his will. We chuckle instead, honoring the constancy of the man's practicality and spirituality, his character. Likewise, we chuckle at the character humor provided by the words of Elder J. Golden Kimball and recorded in the book to, by Brother Tom Cheney, who's seated right here. He said, on being asked by some barbarian if he intended to be funny in his conference sermon, No, I don't. Let me rephrase that. No, I don't. I don't expect it at all, but they laugh at me anyway. I don't know why. I say what the others say. Now take Apostle Ballard. He can get up and say, brethren and sisters, I haven't prepared a sermon today. What I'm going to say, the Lord alone knows. And then he'll preach him a fine sermon. I get up and say the same thing. God only knows what I'm going to tell you today. And they all laugh. <laughs> Such is the humor of character, and we're all grateful for it. Well, this slaughter of innocence has gone on long enough. Let's give thanks for the conclusion of an ordeal that opened at 10.15 sharp and now closes at 10.55 dull. <laughs> it's indeed a difficult death to be talked to death. The temptation here is to give a soaring charge to all of you to shake the January doldrums of your lives by getting up 15 minutes earlier in order to increase your daily intake and output of humor. I will refrain, although some of you could certainly use it. Instead, I'll merely say this. We have enough jokes, I think. What we need are more laughs and more of the optimism and faith in the universe which enables laughter. 
What we need is a greater sense of the ridiculous, the ludicrous, the incongruous. Laughing at the laughable, which often includes laughing at ourselves, will enable us to put mundane realities and eternal truths into their proper perspectives, unfettered by our self, which can distort the simplest of truths. Let me counsel you wisely. Appreciate the comic sense. Cultivate it. Enjoy it. Our senses of humor are our lines of defense against the vicissitudes of life. Often we'll have the choice between laughing and crying at life's tricks. Sometimes crying may be the way to spell relief, but often the best way to get the red out is to laugh. Mark Twain in The Mysterious Stranger has Satan confide that your race in its poverty has unquestionably one really effective weapon, laughter. Power, money, persuasion, supplication, persecution, these can lift at a colossal humbug, push it a little, weaken it a little, century by century, but only laughter can blow it to rags and atoms at a blast. Against the assault of laughter, nothing can stand. In an essay, Mark Twain, whose own life was not always happy, has summed it up well. Humor is the great thing, the saving thing, after all. The minute it crops up, all our hardnesses yield, all our irritations and resentments slip away, and a sunny spirit takes their place. Let us then strive to cultivate that sunny comic spirit. Gloom like the poor is always with us. Good humor is scarce. Let's get them in balance. The comic spirit, in hand with a positive mental attitude, the gospel of Jesus Christ, a million bucks, and a rabbit's foot, now plentiful in Idaho, will make each of us at last the happiest of immortals. Thank you. You've been listening to the Classic Speeches podcast presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts, including recent speeches, updated weekly with new talks given on BYU campus, as well as other speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity by study and by faith. Come follow me, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.